We all stood to our feet, hundreds of us. The holiday choir concert of a large public high school had come to its final crescendo. Some 300 singers stood on the platform, I would guess, with several hundreds of others in the audience standing and facing them. And the choir then thundered the words of its closing piece. It was this, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, Hallelujah. Handel's Hallelujah chorus continued with this, I think, very polarizing declaration. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Praise God. The tears welled in my eyes as the cacophony of rich music caused my heart to soar in hope of that glorious day when Jesus returns returns to conquer and reign over every nation and people forever and ever. And yet, strangely enough, in that massive auditorium with those hundreds of people, I felt lonely and distant. Here were hundreds singing and hearing a message whose meaning and implications entirely missed most of them. Judging by dress, by diverse ethnicities, taking into account simple percentages, the message of Jesus' lordship, this clarion call of repentance, if this is who indeed he is and what indeed will happen, this call of repentance thundered in the ears of Muslims and Jews and secular atheists and pluralists and spiritually dead Christian traditionalists who are comfortable with the words and welcome the sound, but do not live in submission to its message. For most, we would judge the message that reverberated off the rafters fell on deaf ears. And so it has always been with the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah. The gospel of Christ is the most glorious, most transformational message of absolute truth that has ever been announced. It is a message whose truth conquers the heart. It is indeed a message too good not to be true. Yet it is a message that is widely spurned. It is routinely mocked. It is persecuted throughout the planet. It is, however, an unstoppable message. It is an unstoppable message to an unlimited audience. And that is the message of the book of Acts. I invite you to the 28th chapter as we close out the series in this great book today. Acts chapter 28, despite all this rejection, think just in these last chapters of the Apostle Paul, despite all the rejection, persecution, unbelief, Paul has completed now three missionary circuits on which Jews and Gentiles have responded to the message of Christ crucified and risen. Most recently, on this what we might call fourth missionary journey, he has sailed away from the island of Malta, where he and the other prisoners from Palestine had wintered, remembering on the map the journey across the sea in the storm. He's come to that little tiny island of Malta, hits it, 
perfectly in God's providence and has now set out in the spring after wintering there and all of the events on that island of proclaiming Christ, seeing miracles performed to authenticate Paul and his message. Now the group journeys on in another ship and heads up to Sicily and Syracuse and then up to Regium on the western tip of Italy and then up to Puteoli where we left them last week, Acts chapter 28, and going back to verse 14, we find Paul landing in Italy and journeying upward north to Rome. Verse 14, and there we found brothers, that is at Puteoli, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome, general terms, specifics to follow here as they make their way to Rome, but they find brothers here in the nation of Italy uh, in this particular place. They find brothers. That is, the gospel has reached Rome. It has reached Italy. It has reached Rome probably two to three decades earlier. Remember, Paul writes a letter from Corinth before he goes to Jerusalem this last time, writing to the Roman believers. He knows there's a contingent of believers there. He's not bringing the gospel here for the first time. He wants to simply pass through, strengthen the church there, disciple believers, move on then to Spain to the west. He's coming under very different circumstances than he had planned. But what a joy it must have been for he and Luke and Aristarchus to meet believers in Messiah at Puteoli. There was more encouragement on the road ahead. Verse 15, And the brothers there, that is the brothers who are in Rome, when they heard about us, so message precedes Paul, remember he's seven days at Puteoli, during that time, the message precedes him that he is arriving in Rome, and they came as far as the Forum of Apius, or the Market of Apius, perhaps, and the three taverns, or three shops, depending on how we translate the words. They traveled to these places to meet us, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So they come as far as the Forum of Apius, 43 miles to the south of Rome. Ten miles closer to Rome are the three taverns, and they are making their way on the Via Apia, which one is called the oldest, straightest, and most perfectly made of all Roman roads. So there's this straight shot now north into Rome and believers gathering along the way. That strikes us as sort of odd. You just wait till Paul gets here to see him then. But this was custom in that day. When a dignitary arrived into your city, you did not want that person arriving alone. You wanted to make some great processional to bring that person in and to announce to everyone this, this individual has arrived. These believers knew of Paul. They had read his letter to the Romans and they had heard of his missionary efforts and they knew that this great man of God had come. And they're undeterred by the fact that he really actually has an escort of Roman soldiers all surrounding him already. But he is a Roman citizen. He is uncondemned. And so he is allowed to see these friends join him and join this band as it works its way into the great city of Rome. He's entering a city at this time of a million people that has been in existence for now some 800 years. And it is at the height of imperial power. It is at the place where many roads have been formed, where the armies have traversed these roads, and where the situation is ripe for the gospel of Christ to flow further from Rome. Verse 16, And when he, we came into Rome, this large group around Paul, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. 
So Paul was not held in prison. He's permitted to rent a room, of which there were many in Rome. Renting it at his own expense, we'll learn later. Two soldiers would normally have been chained to this prisoner, but for Paul, just one was sufficient. One prisoner, or one soldier rather, chained to his wrist at all times. What would appear to be some two-year period of imprisonment here in Rome, think of it, there's a soldier that never, ever leaves your presence. These soldiers are rotating, the sentries rotate on assignment, and they're therefore exposed to the gospel of Christ. They realize it doesn't take very long for them to see this prisoner is different. He lives his life differently. He talks differently. The way that he relates to these people, there's a, there's a connection between them we've never seen before. They see him on his knees in prayer. They see him reading the scrolls of Scripture. They see his uh, memorization, his meditation upon the Word of God. This is a different man. Paul had intended to come into Rome a free man. He came with a chain around his wrist that had been there for over two years. It didn't matter to him. He came as the servant of Christ. And so what matters was that the gospel was spread. That's what causes Paul rejoicing with all of these rotating soldiers. He writes to the Philippian church, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It may look like disaster, but it's really advancing the gospel. Paul continues on missionary journey now incarcerated by Rome. But he goes on to say, what has become no- it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Even these hardened Roman soldiers in the imperial guard, they're worried about one thing. You've got a soldier there. You want to make sure that you stay alive. You watch him like a hawk at all times on your shift. What's become clear to them is that this man believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah prophesied in Scripture. These Roman soldiers who have no categories for this get that point. He's imprisoned for Christ, and they all know it. And there are those who are responding even in imprisonment. So it matters not to Paul that there's a chain around his wrist. It did not become a matter of of discouragement to him because his purpose was to serve the gospel of Christ. God had changed his plans, and that was God's business. He writes here, indeed, four epistles during this time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And we see in these texts a joyful spirit, not one who's discouraged and taken up with this trial some four-plus years in a chain, never alone never apart from a Roman soldier. We see joy of spirit. We see the highest Christology of the Bible as his theology deepens and as he grows and meditates on the Scriptures there in prison under house arrest. And after getting then rested from the arduous journey, situating his rented quarters here, and also preparing to make his defense, Paul invites the Jewish leaders to Rome in order to meet. His purpose as he awaits trial is apparently to assess the strength of his potential opponents here in Rome, these Jews who might be pressing the prosecution. It's secondly to ward off any false notions about him that they may have, and as always to preach the gospel to the Jews first. So with these ideas in mind, there's 
tens of thousands of Jews living in Rome, and Paul wisely labors to influence their leadership as he prepares for his defense and as he continues to proclaim the gospel. So the first meeting we find at verse 17 with these Jewish leaders and following down to verse 22. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." What's Paul's point? What is he doing here? Thinking of the context, these Jewish leaders, this pending trial before Nero, what is he doing? He's saying, number one, I want you to understand this. I am a Jew who lives in honor of our patriarchal heritage. I have done nothing to harm Judaism. In fact, he wants to tell them that he has found the hope of Israel's scriptures in Jesus Christ. I'm a Jew, done nothing to harm our nation. I've not broken the law. Secondly, I was imprisoned by Rome because of accusations leveled against me by my people in Jerusalem, but the Romans have found no fault in me. I am innocent in their eyes. You need to understand that as well. Thirdly, I appealed to Caesar to save my own neck, not in any way to harm my people in a countersuit. It would be possible for Paul to have arrived and with a countersuit to say, I have been charged unjustly, I have been harmed by uh, these Jews who have accused me and to call for prosecution. I'm not here for that reason. I love my nation. I am seeking simply to reach my people with the message of that their Messiah has come and has risen. I, have, I, I intend no harm to my people. You need to understand that. So what is he saying? In summary, Israel has nothing legitimate against Paul. Rome has nothing against Paul at all, and Paul has nothing against either. You need to understand that as I move now to what the issue is. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. The hope of Israel is at issue. Paul has met the Messiah prophesied in Scripture. He's met him on the road to Damascus now many years ago. But he has met him and he has seen in the scriptures that Jesus is the very fulfillment of Israel's hope in the resurrection. That is what the whole matter is about. Verse 21, they respond to him saying, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now, that's rather surprising. Perhaps it's not even entirely true. Perhaps for political reasons, there's a lot that goes behind this. But remember, uh, a decade or so earlier, the Jews had been expelled from Rome, and it's very likely that one of the reasons they were expelled was because of the riotous foment over Christianity. Now they're trickling back in to Rome. They don't stand in a very solid position. They've been booted out once before. And now they come back into Rome, and it's probably not to their advantage to be pressing a whole lot against Paul. But perhaps on some level, the message just has not come to them. That Paul 
is one to be despised and to be opposed. At any rate, they're open to hearing Paul's defense at a deeper level, his views about Messiah. And so a second meeting takes place beginning at verse 23. A second meeting is described. So he's being met by believers as he comes into Rome and along the way, He meets with the Jewish leaders here initially to set up his defense and to explain what the issue is really about. And now the most important meeting with them comes in the second meeting, verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Very likely meeting outside in an atrium or off uh, on a street. These great numbers would have gathered around and heard Paul speak. If you could go back in history, this would be one of those places you'd want to go, among many others. But this would, what a tremendous day that would have been. More Jewish leaders gathered. An entire day, Paul opens the Old Testament scriptures and demonstrates that Jesus is God's Messiah. That he is sovereign over God's kingdom. This Jew, this man of Nazareth, of despised Nazareth, who was crucified, is God's Messiah reigning today over his kingdom. Jesus was, he's arguing from Moses. Remember, he was the deliverer prophesied who would come to crush Satan's head. He is a child of Abraham, and indeed he falls in the line of King David and fulfills all of the prophecies of being David's greater son, who has won redemption for his people. We know and we have rejoiced together in the prophecies of Scripture about our Messiah who would come and reign and conquer and win over our enemies. Remember these prophecies, but remember those prophecies we've struggled with that speak of this one who would be crushed for our iniquities who would bear our transgressions as the Lamb. Remember these prophecies? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the day that He died. And let me tell you about His resurrection and these prophecies of the Old Testament that speak of this resurrection. How can this Christ, this actual Son of David, reign forever and ever? He brings it all together for them in one rich day of theology. These who share that common foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures, hearing that Christ is Messiah, Paul, we notice as he argues here, couples rational proclamation of the truth with persuasion. He is at the end of verse 23 testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus using the law of Moses and the prophets. So he's combining rational explanation and proclamation with persuasion. Figuratively speaking, the Apostle Paul sings the glorious hallelujahs of the messianic hope for his audience, and it all points directly to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Now what happens is very crucial. Verse 24, a theme of the entire book, sounds here again at the end, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
others did not heed. So we witness again the mixed response to the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. I don't know that anyone could ever do a better job than what Paul did there. That people could be better prepared as Jews coming to this place. And that he, with an entire day at the height of his theological development and capacities as a speaker, could deliver anything better than what was delivered here. But some disbelieved. The message was sounded beautifully, but the response is mixed. I think it says to us, as God's people, to remember it's not all about us and how well we do with proclaiming the gospel. We need to be students of the gospel. We need to learn how to make it stick and how to rationally develop it with people and present it, certainly. But I think in the end, we must remember this gospel will be rejected. And I think we can say that if you are not willing to suffer rejection as a witness for Jesus, you will not evangelize the lost. It won't happen. Consistent rejection is the path we must take in order to reach the few who will respond. It's a rugged road. It's a tough mountain. There's rejection all along the way. People will not simply fall down before us and receive the gospel, though they should. Paul did not expect that. He knew that through many sorrows we enter the kingdom of God. As a sower, he suffered. But how does Paul interpret this rejection? There's a place where we can ignore and avoid the proclamation of the gospel because we're afraid to be rejected and in any way to suffer. There's another way we can avoid this. And that's to say, as we proclaim, this is my opinion. This is what's happened in my life. You have your opinion and what's happened in your life. And so I respectfully look at your free will and I give high regard to that. I go my way with what I believe, and you go your way with what you believe. There's a place where we've really skipped reality there. We've bypassed the truth. That's not how Paul responds. As if they, were, they had a legitimate right to exercise free will in rejection of Christ. What does he say, verse 25, or what happens? Disagreeing among themselves... They departed after Paul had made one statement. Had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is what Paul says to them at this full day of indoctrination and seeing in the pages of Scripture the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ. You are like Israel of old. The message is sounded, but it falls on deaf ears. Paul identifies indeed with the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, that time of great vision of the glory and holiness of God, God commissions Isaiah to the hard task of confronting Israel with a message that will only harden their hearts. It's a heart-wrenching prophecy. 
Now think of who Israel is. Israel sees herself as uniquely privileged to receive the word of God. God chose us. Even blind Israel said that. We are uniquely chosen by God among all the nations of the earth. And God has bequeathed to us, entrusted into our stewardship, His word. He doesn't speak to the other nations. He speaks to us, Israel. God's word was Israel's life, was Israel's crown. And even unbelieving Israel knew that. Yet ironically, Israel hardens her heart against the very words of God. You've stopped your ears. You've hardened your heart. You're blind to the truth. Paul does not simply allow them to walk out. Now understand, these are not pagans that he's first having to come to explain creation and who the true one God is. These are people who have the background and the knowledge of the one true and living God who know his word very well and who are rejecting Christ after a very careful explanation. Of such people, Paul does not simply say, well, you're entitled to your opinion. If Isaiah 6 verses 9 through 10 means anything here, it means you are not entitled to your opinion. Jesus Christ is Lord And the reason that you do not see it is you are blind and in rebellion against him. You will not see it. God's condemnation of Israel in Isaiah's day has continuing relevance in Paul's day. In fact, Jesus himself quoted this very text in regard to Israel as Paul quotes it here. In Isaiah 6, the terminology is even a bit stronger than the particular translation that Paul quotes here. And in Isaiah 6, it's God is really seen to be the one who hardens the hearts of Israel through his prophet. But let's remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks of the lost. It says that they are deceived by Satan. And then the phrase says this, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They're deceived by Satan because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Figuratively speaking, then the door from hell to earth is locked on the outside. The door from hell to heaven is locked on the inside. Those who will live eternity in separation from God never will want any other destiny than to be separated from Him. Not to say they won't call out for it. Not to say they might deceive themselves to believe that's not what they want. But there is in the depth of the heart of the lost a rejection of God because they refuse to love the truth. And they always will. I speak, of course, of these doors and locks figuratively. Uh, If some would change their mind in hell, that's not a possibility. But what I'm saying is that what's deep in the heart, there will be no desire to be with God. There will be a desire, as is in the heart of Satan, to reign and to rule and to love self above God. Occasionally, There come individuals who grow up within a Bible-teaching church. 
And they come to recognize the message that the Bible teaches very clearly that God chooses people for salvation. No one who receives the grace of God can come and stand and say, that was all my idea. We must all come at the end and realize that only but for the grace of God we would be in hell and rejecting Him. But there's some who come then and say, I sense that God has not chosen me. God has chosen to harden my heart. God has chosen to reject me. I don't know why, I don't understand it, but there's others who are moved by the gospel whose lives are changed, but God has chosen to harden my heart. No one can ever say that. Of course there is a sense in which the Bible says that, but there is a sense in which no individual can ever stand before God and say that. I stand before you in eternity, bringing glory to your name by rejecting your gospel. No one can say that. They are deceived by Satan, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The root, the heart of any rejection of Christ is not to be pinned upon God, but is to be pinned where the gospel always puts it, and that is a person refusing to love the truth. You will hear but never understand, for this people's heart has grown dull. Their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, what is the significance of this quotation at this place? It is one of the longest Old Testament quotes in the book of Acts. It is the last Old Testament quote in Acts. And it is vital to the closing of this book. The point is Israel's rejection of Messiah results from entrenched rejection of God's Word. God has His purposes There are purposes we cannot ultimately define and certainly cannot control. But what we can deal with is that Israel has rejected the gospel of Christ. Israel was entrusted with the glorious strains of God's power and saving grace. But as hard as it is to fathom, she has rejected that message. Otherwise, God would heal And as equally difficult as it is to imagine, in the context of salvation history, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you, Paul continues, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Amazing grace. A stunning turn in salvation history. Indeed, the very message of Acts. Israel was God's elect people through whom He had chosen to channel His saving purposes for centuries. If Israel got anything, if the people around who understood Israel got anything, it was that God was working His salvation through Israel, through this chosen nation. But when Jesus fulfilled the law and became the law, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, His saving grace went global. 
not inward through Israel, but now outward reaching Gentiles as Gentiles, and they will listen in far greater numbers than Israel has heard to this point in time. Some argue on the basis of this verse then that God is done with Israel. There are Israelites who will come to saving faith in Christ, be identified with the church, but there's utterly no future for national Israel. We ask the question, has God rejected Israel forever? Has he moved on unto another stage? No, writes the apostle in Romans 9 through 11, and particularly 11.29, he says, no, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What those chapters labor to make clear is God is not finished with Israel as a national identity, that they, are, they continue to be part of His saving plan. And there are those who are coming to Christ and being identified with the church. What He has uniquely done in Christ is not to turn Israel away forever, but is to receive the Gentiles as Gentiles who place their faith in Israel's Messiah. There's prophetic indicators of this turn of events, but this is really radical thinking, a new dawn, a new age has come. And so the narrative ends here with Israel's rejection. This is a profound statement at the end of the book. It's tragic, but the triumph of the gospel among the Gentiles is also announced here. Where does the book of Acts begin? It begins in Jerusalem. It, has, it ends in Rome. It begins with people receiving the baptism of the Spirit and responding in Jerusalem. It ends with Israel rejecting God here in Rome. It begins in Jerusalem. It finishes in Rome as the gospel goes out to the nations. And more on that in a moment. But there really is, though subtle, a triumphal ending to the book. A triumphal ending, verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul, we know, is accustomed to traveling to the synagogues. Now the synagogues have to travel to him. But his message concerns the reign and the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is broken into history and is conquering the hearts of sinners throughout the world. Jesus continues to conquer souls. That is the point. He continues his effort to win people to himself. And he does so through the proclamation of his witnesses. So Luke closes this sixth track with a declaration of the prosperity of the gospel. Much as the previous five tracks have ended. Remember those tracks as they end to that, in that concluding phrase in 6-7. In chapter 9, 31, in 12, 24, 16, 5, 19, 20, at these various places, the message is sent that the gospel is going forth unhindered. The gospel is making progress. So we have suffering and trial and persecution, but the message is going forward. That's the message of Acts. And where does it end? He speaks with all boldness and without hindrance. It ends right here. Paul is serving the purposes of the reigning Christ and he speaks his saving grace with candid, confident assurance. 
and it goes forward without hindrance. He's hindered. He's chained to a Roman soldier. Where he lives and where he travels, where he goes, is entirely dictated by the Roman Empire. There's a day to come in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 where he is chained in a dungeon. No longer in his own rented facilities, but he says there nothing can stop the gospel. The gospel will never be shackled or restricted, though his people, the God's people may be. God's servants suffer as they sow the word. But the Lord of the harvest reigns supreme, and He continues to pour out His saving grace according to His eternal purposes. Nothing can stop the gospel going into the whole world because nothing can stop the victorious Christ. And so the book sort of just trails off the end of the scroll doesn't end very happily for those of us who like a good story ending, does it? What happens to Paul? Well, it's not Paul's biography, is it? It didn't begin with Paul uh, in his conversion on the road to Damascus. It began with others, and it has included others throughout. It's not Paul's biography. What's established here are the roots of Christianity and the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, the crossroads of the empire. That's what's been established. And perhaps Luke intended to write a sequel, but for some reason didn't live long enough to do so. We don't know why. If it was persecution or natural death or what the case might be, certainly it would seem he would want to bring the story to close on Paul's life and continue telling the history of the church. This is all that's needed. This is what the Spirit chose to give us. It's, I think, fairly certain that Paul was set free, that he evangelized for another several years and later was incarcerated again at Rome where he was executed as a Christian by Emperor Nero. But that really is not the point. The book of Acts trails off because the story is still being told. The music of the unconquerable gospel to the world is still being sung. The gospel of Jesus Christ will go out to the ends of the world. It will reach every tribe and tongue and nation until the end of time. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached, said Jesus, in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 24 and verse 14. If we fail to embrace this reality by faith, if we fail to know the agenda of Christ to reach the entire globe in His way, in His time, for His glory, if we do not plug in to that purpose, if we do not with Jesus labor to advance the gospel in a lost world, we cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. We become a club unto ourselves, a family perhaps, but a family that's lost its way entirely. If we do not proclaim the gospel to the lost, it is because we have become idolaters in our private lives and a lifeless monument as a church. There is only one Lord, and thus every person on earth must submit to Jesus Christ as Savior or be eternally judged. Jesus is doing that work through His people.
proclaiming that message. When I speak of this, I don't speak in a small view of witness, but in a large view of witness. In all that we do, it should be serving the gospel and working with the discipleship of God's people. But having said that, if we are not working with Christ in His purposes, we've just become a monument as a church, a statue. Certainly attesting to what Christ has done, but not joining the living Christ in proclaiming the unstoppable gospel. He will reign forever. As the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, He will reign forever. He will be the one true and living Lord as He is now. It will be seen Reigning forever as the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of Christ. And it is in this authority that we proclaim Christ crucified and risen to all nations. It's in His authority. Now, there's people who stop here and say, oh, come on. You've got to get this. This is Christianity's way of controlling people. Telling them what they have to believe. And then the, 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 the faith can grow and can control more people and get more money and have more power and influence. That's all this is about. You Christians telling other people what they need to believe, it's just so that you can run the show. You want to take over and you want to impose your will. And I would say in response, no, we are willing to die for others so that Jesus can take over. And so that He will rule the universe as is his right. And he will. Most will not embrace the beauty and the reality of this magnificent truth. Yes, we will offend people who want to hold their own opinions. Most will hear the music of the gospel and not grasp its true implications and repent. But may God grant us courage and freedom to proclaim this unstoppable gospel to the entire world. And may He grant us never-ending joy that this message has found us as Gentiles. Why do we gather on the Lord's day? We come to worship as people drawn out from the nations in His name. Remember Acts 1.8, you will go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel, starting here at Jerusalem, going through Judea, through Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Well, they listened. They heard. The people of Christ took that message and serving as the mouthpiece of the risen Christ, they proclaimed the message of salvation and it's reached us here. We gather on the Lord's day to lift up His name, to exalt in His presence and to say the message has reached us. To gather our gifts and to play out our influence that that message may go out and reach others throughout the world. There was that golden milestone in the forum at Rome from which all roads led from there and had had now a long time to be built up by the army. It was a place ready for the gospel to continue to run into all the world. Which way would the Spirit blow from here? Well, it largely, though going east and south, went west. The message was proclaimed throughout Europe with all of its rejection and with all of the persecution, it seemed that God was moving westward. And that message 
of Jesus Christ has come and has reached this place where we now are. And as the Spirit continues to blow, it would appear that He's moving southward and east. Asia and Africa, South America are the places where the message is really taking root. And particularly in Asia as it works its way up to the door of the Middle East where it all began. And where the gospel is making its progress. This is where we have persecution. This is where our brothers and sisters are dying for the cause of Christ. We, in a sense, stand here in America cleaning up after them. Those who have gone before and have suffered and died for the cause of, the Christ, of Christ. But wherever we are, whether in a place that is growing post-Christian, whether in a place where we are supporting missions throughout the world, or in one of those frontier locations, we should have a desperate interest in the salvation of all nations. We should love what Jesus Christ is doing. We should want to know where our brothers and sisters are being persecuted. It should be absolutely of interest to us where Jesus is pressing His agenda. Not to get into it in the sense of, look what we are doing. Though on some level, in a small level, that may be appropriate. It's not about what we are doing in this world to reach people with the gospel. It's what the reigning Christ is doing. Where is He working? Where are His servants suffering? Where is the message of Christ being taken where it's not been heard? Oh yes, there will be those there in those places who reject it, who stop their ears who have blind eyes. And even here in a place where the message is widely heard, there will be those who have never heard, who live right near you and interact with you. And there will be those who hear the message proclaimed, Hallelujah! The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. His Christ will come and will reign forever and ever, and the message will go right past. But may we never forget Jesus is working to save His people. He is drawing them out of the nations and He is calling upon us to join that work that He alone can do. A message that will reach the planet as Christ reigns. And as the new song is sung in eternity, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, Jesus By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Our Christ will reign forever and ever over the nations because there is but one Lord. There is but one faith. And we must take that message into all the world. Every tribe and language and people and nation brought under the authority of one Lord. That's our hope. It's a hope that brings joy and transformation and comfort. It's a hope that many don't understand. But may we proclaim it that we would see Christ break hard hearts, open blind eyes, and open the ears of the deaf to hear the strains of Jesus crucified and risen for the salvation of His people. This is our agenda. Not just His, 
But may we join that agenda and proclaim that truth until he calls us home. Because that's why we're here. To worship and to announce the glories of his name to a people lost in sin. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need to repent, to turn from our idolatries and self-centeredness and fears. We need your grace. I pray that you'd meet with us and sustain us in repentance that we'd pour out our prayers of our follies and our weaknesses, our smallness as people. But Lord, we also thank you that the message of Christ crucified and risen is going out. Going out from this church. We thank you for those who have heard the gospel this week. We praise you for those that have been reached with this message and are being nurtured in the faith, for those that are being discipled. And I thank you for the efforts that are being made to continue to reach out as an assembly in communion with one another. And I pray that you will continue to bless those efforts. There are home groups that are strategizing and thinking about how we can reach unbelievers with the message in this coming year. And I pray, God, that you will pour out your blessing upon those efforts. There are those that are carrying on Bible studies with unbelievers, and there are those that are witnessing on a daily basis. And I pray, God, that you would grant fruit for these labors, not because we deserve it, but because we believe that Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. There may be some among us here today who do not know Christ in a saving way, undoubtedly know about Him, but they do not know Him. I pray that you would bring that transforming light to enlighten the dark soul, that you would bring salvation this day to those who are bound in sin. This is our cry to you and our prayer. We pray tonight as we gather as a church and as there are those invited who do not know Christ as Savior, may they see this message, that the message of salvation does not come from within, but comes from without. It's not exclusive to one group of people, but is for all. And I pray that there'd be those who respond. We pray to this end, asking that we might arise and do your bidding. Through Christ I pray. Amen.